Okay, we're in chapter 6. And a lot of this chapter has been dealing with Israel's uh, military struggles with the kingdom of Aram, where Aram was engaging in this war of attrition where they're slowly weakening the kingdom of Israel with ambushes and plundering of the land. And we saw a couple of verses uh, ago, we're in verse 24, but right before that, we saw that Elisha actually pulls off a miracle where he has the Aramean soldiers trapped in the Shomron, and he gives instruction to the king of Israel to release them. So we examine why would he do that? I mean, he's sparing a very vicious enemy. And we said that because it's not a, a war that the king fought, but the prophet fought. It's, so the rules kind of change. And um, because Elisha's goal is totally to sanctify the name of Hashem, he can achieve that by releasing the prisoners where they can now go to Aram and tell of the amazing miracle that the prophet in the Shomron is able to do, and that kind of causes a pursue nisa, a publicizing of the miracle a lot more than if you just kind of shechted, you know, slaughtered the soldiers there on the spot. And that might be another factor that we didn't mention why they released those captives. In any case, we see now that they're going to come back, Aram is going to come back in, in a big way. And that opens here in verse 24. And it was afterwards, that is, after the hostility, there was a break in the hostility. But after that, the king of Aram mustered his camp, he gathered up all the soldiers and his camp, and he went up and he besieged the Shomron. So now we have a full-scale war, not some ambush that Benadad, king of Aram, is leading. And... They're surrounding the city of Shomron, which is the capital of the kingdom of Israel, where the king is. And so we got a very serious situation here. Again, it's not a squirmish at the border. And it's a full-scale uh, war to conquer the kingdom of Israel. So Ben-Hadad uh, is the king of Aram here. And is it the, is it the same Ben-Hadad that Ahav uh, was waging war with all the time? Because if you recall, Ahav, the father of Yoram, the king of Israel here, he um, had a couple of good wars with Ben-Hadad. And in one of those wars, if we recall, back in, I think it was chapter 20 of Kings 1, Achav had Aram and Ben-Hadad totally on the ropes. He had decimated the armies of Aram. A great miracle. Uh, uh, the prophet told him to go to war and Achav succeeded in uh, wiping out Aram. And he had Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, totally on the ropes, begging for mercy. And if we recall, uh, Achav made a big mistake and he acquiesced and he he uh, made a peace treaty with Benedad, king of Aram, let him go. And Achav was severely punished and rebuked by the prophet for that. Now, if this is the same Benedad, that really shows the uselessness of that treaty. And because Benedad is really the, not the name of a person, but probably it's just kind of a generic name for any king of uh, Aram. Just like Paro is the name of any king of uh, Egypt. But even if it's not the same person, we see that the lesson is clear that these peace treaties are really useless because at any time, when the king sees fit, or his son sees fit, or the next leader of that nation decides it's fit for him to go to war and break the treaty, he's going to do that. So we see now the son of Achav being attacked by Benadad, king of Aram. So it says now in verse 25e, Rav Gadol B'Shomron, 
and there was a severe famine in the Shomron. So this, this famine in Samaria could be a double famine. Not only is there a drought that's been taking place, but because of the siege, it's even worse because they're cutting off the supplies now to the Shomron. It's a walled city that they're surrounding. And they besieged it to such a point. It became so bad, the situation, that a donkey's head was selling for 80 silver pieces. Now a donkey's head is just about the most useless part of the donkey. As a matter of fact, the head of any animal is useless unless you want the head of a fish on Rosh Hashanah. You're not going to do much with a head, but in this case, because the famine was so acute, the donkey's head was going for 80 silver pieces. So obviously the people are being forced to eat unclean animals and even the head of a donkey. And not only that, but it says in the verse for 25, the continuation, and a quarter of a cav of pigeon droppings was being sold for five silver pieces. So there's no wood. There's no supplies. They can't make a fire. So they had to uh, kindle pigeon droppings and that's going for a pretty steep price of five silver pieces. So that's the situation. Verse 26. So now, the king of Israel was passing on the wall. That is, he's kind of surveying the situation. And a woman cried out to him, and she said, Save me, my lord the king. So it says in verse 27, And he said, That if, the, if, the, if God can't save you, how can I save you? And then it says that he said to her after that, from the threshing floor or from the wine press. So the king is answering her that I have no access to food. The, the threshing floor and the wine press are outside the walls and I can't give you anything to eat. And you could just see kind of the cynicism and the hopelessness in the king's voice is when he says, if, if God doesn't save you, you know, what do you want from me? That's basically what he's saying. So while we see that the people are turning to the king, for hope, he has no answers. And we'll see that the king of Israel throughout is going to be just hopeless and hapless here. So it says now in verse 28, So the king said to her, what, what, what do you want? That is, he thought she just wanted food. So he said, I can't give you any wheat or wine because it's blocked away. It's blocked off in the, from the siege. So she's telling her, she's telling him, no, no, I have something else. I want you to litigate for me. And she gives him now a story. The Tomer. This woman here, next to me, said to me, She said to me, Give me your son and let us eat him today. And she said, Tomorrow we'll eat my son. So what happened? So we cooked up my son, and we ate him. And I, so I told her the next day, Give me your son and let, let us eat him. After it's your turn. We ate my son. Now it's, ter- it's time to eat your son. That was the deal. And what happened? She hid her son. So this horrific story of cannibalism and a total loss of humanity here, as you know, exemplified by this story, and according to uh, the Talmud, they have actually a, 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 a dispute with the Talmud to show how bad it was. When she says she hid her son, the second woman, didn't give her son over, did she hide him to keep him alive until maybe food comes along? Well, one of the rabbis in the Talmud says, no, 
This second woman actually cooked her son and slaughtered and cooked her son. And she was just holding back on giving the meat, the flesh of her son to this woman because it says, give up your son and let us eat him. It doesn't say let us cook him or slaughter him. That, that means he was already slaughtered and cooked and they want, she wants to eat him and she's not letting this other woman eat her son. So that kind of just makes the situation even more brutal if that's so. So let's go on to see now what the king's going to do about this. When he heard the woman's words, he rent his garment and he, he, remember he's tearing his kingly garment, which is kind of shocking to see while it was passing on the wall. Obviously he was upset at this story. Uh, so he rents his garment and he's walking on the wall and the people see it. It's like a public display. What do they see also? They see that underneath his kingly garment, he was wearing sackcloth on his flesh. So the king of Israel, upon hearing this story, was so upset that he he did a kriya. He tore his garment and underneath we see that he was already wearing sackcloth on his flesh as a son of mourning. So why was he hiding it from the people until then? Well, the that's so free says maybe he was just hiding it from his mother, Jezebel. Remember, Yoram is the son of Jezebel and she wouldn't want to see Yoram doing you know Jewish things. But maybe just a pshat is that he was in mourning and um, he did not want the people to see that because it's not dignified for the king to wear sackcloth. Now the Malbim has an interesting perush here. And the Malbim says the following, and I'll read it in Hebrew and translate. That what we see here shows the ultimate despair. Up until now, the king of Israel was somehow hoping and praying for Hashem to have mercy on his people. That's why he was wearing a sackcloth underneath. So he's wearing a sack. He was repenting. He was praying. But now that the king saw this, this, this women's eating their son's flesh here, he totally despaired from Hashem's salvation. And that's why he says in the next verse, you got to go and get Elisha. Get, bring his head to me. So the Malbim is kind of combining verse 30 and 31. That he's saying that the king of Israel that this move here, where he's renting his garment, it wasn't to have a double mourning, like he's mourning underneath and now he's mourning again, but it's to show he's totally given up. And that's proven by verse 31 that he wants to kill the prophet. Because if he had really done tshuva, like you'd think, he wouldn't say in, verse, in the next verse, bring me the head of Elisha. Okay, so let's now go to verse 31. It says in verse 31, so now he swears. That's a way of swearing. So shall God do and so shall he continue. We've seen that before. That's kind of a term of lishvua. And he says, I swear to stress what you want to say. If the head of Elisha remains on him today. So what he's saying here is, I want to take off Elisha's head. And you got to ask the question, I mean, what does he want from Elisha? Why does he want to kill the prophet? The prophet Elisha. So, well, according to the Datsofrim, and the Datsofrim kind of uh, gives uh, the king of Israel the benefit of the doubt a lot in his perush, but he says that 
It's simply that the king of Israel, upon seeing what happened, this story of the two women eating the flesh of their uh, children, it just kind of made him nuts. He just went mad, and he's gone mad, and he just wants to kill the prophet, but he's not really responsible for what he's saying. Rashi, though, says the following. He says, So Rashi says that, why is he mad at Elisha? Because Elisha could have prayed to God for mercy. So he's blaming the prophet for not somehow praying to the Lord to alleviate this horrible situation. It's kind of like what Achav was doing. His uh, this, By the way, the king of Israel, his name is Yoram. Even though they say king of Israel, we know that it's Yoram, son of Achav. And his father Achav, kind of in a, in a similar way, blamed Elisha, uh, sorry, blamed Elijah, if you remember. He was blaming Elijah the prophet also for the famine. He was looking all over for him. He wanted to, uh, you know, who knows what he wanted to, to, to Elijah. He had been looking all over the world for Elijah during the famine there for seven years. So in the same way, his son, he wants to get Elisha, kind of blaming him for what's happening. So just one other possibility that Rav Ariel um, um, says, he said that he's mad at Elisha because Elisha let the prisoners go. Right? If you go back to the previous episode in, in chapter 6 that we learned in Oleshior, we had a lot of these Arameans trapped inside the Shomron and Elisha said, let him go. So that's why uh, Yoram here is upset with Elisha because he uh, ordered the uh, king to release these prisoners. So he's blaming Elisha for that. In any case, what we see here is that um, basically the King Yoram is not functioning blaming the prophet for everything. And it's kind of like, um, just, you don't know what to do. So you're blaming the prophet. He becomes the object of your scorn. So we see a confused king, a king full of despair, and also a chutzpah king, an insolent king, where he's actually to say, bring me the head of Elisha. So let's see now what happens now in verse 32, Lamed Bet. Elisha Yoshev Bebeto. And Elisha's sitting in his house, Remember I said Elisha's kind of cool, 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 calm and cool throughout? Well, yeah, you get that here in verse 32. He's sitting in his house when everybody's in panic. And the elders are sitting with him. So we haven't heard much about the elders in the Shomron, but there's elders. There's Chachamim, a Sanhedrin, sitting with him. And, a mess- and they sent a man before him. Now, verse 32 is kind of a long verse, and we're going to dissect it part by part. So it says, Elisha's sitting in the house with the elders, and he sent a man before him. Now, that's really not clear. Who sent the man before who? So it could be that the king sent a man before him. The king, we know the king sent a man before him to go and get Elisha. Or it could mean that Elisha sent a man before him. Maybe they were litigating with the Skenim and the Sanhedrin together, and they sent out all the litigants because they know this trouble coming. So it says, that is, Elisha sent them away before the messenger had arrived. And Elisha said to the elders, now remember, Elisha has prophecy and he knows that Yoram's coming after him. And he said to the elders, Did you see that this son of a murderer has sent to remove my head? So Elisha, it, maybe it's not through prophecy, maybe there was an announcement that um, the king is, wants to kill Elisha and take his head off. So in any case, 
he calls the king of Israel Ben Hameratzech, the son of a murderer. So it, it could be that he's referring to the fact that Yoram's father, Achav, murdered the prophets, at least Jezebel did, and he was partner to that. And they also he also murdered Navot. So he's the son of a murderer. The other possibility is that it's kind of like an expression, Ben Hameratzech, you son of a gun, or... We have an exclude. We have an, um, a term Ben Navat Mardut. That's King Saul said, "You son of a unscrupulous woman." It's kind of like maybe an expression, maybe not literal. That son of a murderer is talking about Achav specifically. But in any case, that's what Elisha calls the king of Israel. This Ben Amiratzeh is coming after me to take my head off, and then he coolly and calmly tells the people there what to do. When you see the messenger come. Keboa Malach. Malach means angel in Hebrew, but it also means messenger. When you see the messenger come, before he comes, Sigru Adelet, close the door on him, for the Chatztemoto Badelet, and kind of put your foot there against him so he can't open the door. And, um, and then he says, in the continuation of the verse, when you're holding the door against him, he says, Halokol Raglei Adonav Acharav. The soul or the sound of his master's footsteps will follow him. So that's kind of amazing. Elisha knows this. He says that, hold the door against him because the king, that's his master, is following him. So Elisha knows that King Yoram is following the messenger and and Elisha wants to, um, wants to give over a prophecy and he's waiting for the king, Yoram, to come too, because when he gives off his prophecy about, and he's going to give it off at the in uh, next chapter in verse one, he's going to give a prophecy. He wants it to be heard by the king. So he says, "You just let that man. Don't let him in. Let his master's footsteps follow him, and then I'll give my prophecy." Now, why would Yoram follow the messenger? And Elisha knows it. He says his master's footsteps will follow him. Why would the king chase down the messenger? So interesting that most of the commentators say that Yoram regrets what he instructed the messenger to do. That is, he's, he regrets the order to kill Elisha. He knows it's wrong. And he's trying to undo that, that, that kingly command. So he's running after the messenger to halt that order. So we see again, Yoram is a vacillating king, an indecisive king. He might not be a bad person. He's identifying with the pain. But... He doesn't know what to do. And he, um, again, helpless and hapless throughout this entire situation. So it says in verse 33, And just while he was speaking with him, while Elisha was telling the the elders what to do, The messenger was coming down to him. And he said, This calamity is from the Lord what can I hope more from the Lord? So what is that? Now, there's a lot of verses in this chapter, at least in this episode we're learning, that aren't really clear. You don't know who's talking. You don't know who's saying to who. Like when it said he sent a man before him in verse 32. Now we have another verse here that he said, Behold, the calamity is from the Lord. What can I hope from the Lord? Like, who said that and what does it mean? And that's how we end the chapter, by the way. So let's try to f- end up this chapter and try to figure out this last verse. Again, what's the situation? They've 
breaking into Elisha's house. They're coming down to his house. Elisha is holding, telling him to hold off until the king comes by. And the king comes there. And this messenger comes there. And then we have this verse, This calamity is from the Lord. So who said it? So most likely the king said it. The king of Israel came there. And he said, This tragedy is from the Lord. What more can I hope from the Lord? What does that mean? So the um, simple understanding, Rashi brings this, that by saying this tragedy is from the Lord, the king is admitting that this is from Hashem. It's not Elisha's fault. Not only is it from Hashem, it's something that's written directly in the Torah. Because it says in the Torah, in, in the in the Tochacha, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, when it's giving a list of curses, that you will eat the fruit of your womb during the siege. And that's exactly what's happening. They're eating the fruit of their womb. So the king is saying here that this tragedy is from the Lord. That is, it's written in the Torah. It's one of the curses from the Lord. So if that's so, why would he say, and what more can I hope from the Lord? Ma'ochil Hashem od, as it says in Hebrew, ma'ochil Hashem od. So that means that if it's written in the Torah, then what can I possibly do to rectify the situation? That is, Hashem's not going to change his mind. He's decreed this terrible tragedy. It's written in the Torah. What can I ha- possibly pray for to fix that? So that could be how we can understand this final verse in chapter 6. The mitzvah that David has a little nice twist on it. And he says that what he's saying is, well, first of all, to, let's look at it in Hebrew. Ma'ochil Hashem od. The word ochil, it comes from the root yachel. Now yachel means to pray, but it also means to hope. Now they're similar words. You pray, you hope. But if it means to hope, then you can say the following. And this is the mitzvah that David says, that if this is from the Lord, if this calamity is truly an act of Hashem, as we see written in Deuteronomy, and it's a punishment for our sins, then the messenger is saying, and here the messenger is speaking according to the mitzvah that David, or the, he's saying, if I harm the prophet, what hope will there be for me? So achil, from the word hope, if I harm the prophet, I'm, I've sinned horribly because it's from Hashem. So how can I hope from the Lord? Meaning, what hope would there be for me anymore if I harmed the prophet of Hashem? And that's a nice pshat because we see in the end they don't harm Elisha. And the messenger is just like, doesn't want to touch Elisha. And neither does the king for that matter. They're kind of doing tshuva on the way here. And now we're going to see in chapter 7 what Elisha's prophecy finally is.